The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, so welcome everyone. Glad you're here on this beautiful spring evening. Hope you had a chance to be outside today. Um, uh, my name is Mira, and some of you may have heard me before. Um, I was here last week um, filling in for Wynn and then... Um, and then, all, of course, for my Mark, as he's away on retreat. And I'm a longtime community member, and I've been um, um, integrating um, meditation into psychotherapy for many decades and work as a psychotherapist and also teach meditation at some local universities and in the mindfulness-based stress reduction program at the U. So, so anyway, I've been around for a while, and, and this is one of my home practice communities for many years. So it's always a, a joy to be here. So um, this week, um, the talk is on cultivating a courageous heart. Cultivating a courageous heart. And I'd like to start with um, one of my favorite um, teachings of the Buddha, that has to do with um, our, our heart, our heart, releasing our heart. Hence, the purpose of the holy life does not consist in acquiring merit, honor, fame, or gaining more morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance, the sure heart's release, that indeed is the object of the holy life, that's its essence and its goal from the Buddha. The unshakable, the sure heart's release. So, what is a courageous heart? Um, From the Shambhala tradition, from Trungpa, he says that it's not being afraid of who you are. Bravery is not being afraid of yourself and that each one of us has a root of basic goodness within us. So not being afraid of ourselves. With the contemplation I read, um, I think it takes courage to recognize um, as we're putting our lives together what is fitting and what is not, and to be able to let go or to be able to... um, put something down or not take it up takes courage. Sometimes it's courage just to say, no, thank you. Mark Nepo um, is a wonderful poet and writer, practitioner. He wrote a book called The Book of Awakening, and it has daily readings in it. And uh, that's one of the, the practices that he recommended. And he started that particular reading on Twig and Nest with a quote from Walt Whitman. I think I could turn and live with animals. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. No one is dissatisfied. So last week I was here talking about tending the tender heart. And I think what goes along with that is is this courage, this capacity to stay, to sit, to really um, embrace oneself, 
So this is by Pema Chodron. Pema says, the fifth instruction is stay, stay, just stay. Learning to stay with ourselves in meditation is like training a dog. If we train a dog by beating it, we'll end up with an obedient but very inflexible and rather terrified dog. The dog may obey when we say, stay, come, roll over, sit up, but he will also be neurotic and confused. By contrast, training with kindness results in someone who's flexible, confident, who doesn't become upset when situations are unpredictable and insecure. So whenever we wander off, we gently encourage ourselves to stay, to settle down. Are we experiencing restlessness? Stay. Discursive mind? Blada, blada, right? Stay. Are we experiencing fear and loathing, feeling out of control? Stay. Aching knees, throbbing back? Stay. What's for lunch? Stay. What am I doing here? Stay. I can't stand it another minute. Stay. So none of you can leave now, right? <laughs> so, so the practice of learning to accept ourselves and to stay is a courageous heart, develops a courageous heart. I'd like to draw on a very wise being that I think you'll recognize. And um, I'd like to invite you to chime in once you understand who this wise being is on the chorus line. All right, so join me if you like. So this is a being who was very afraid, who um, was practicing courage while afraid. So. Is it true that you have to be unafraid to be courageous? Can you be afraid and still be courageous? So this is the cowardly lion, wisdom from the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz. Since lions are supposed to be the king of beasts, he believes his fear makes him inadequate. Sound familiar? He does not understand that courage means acting in the face of fear, which he does frequently. He continues to do brave deeds while openly and embarrassingly fearful. Can we continue to do brave deeds even though we're fearful and we feel inadequate? So here is the cowardly lion's speech. Courage. What makes a slave a king? What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast to wave? What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist in the dusky dusk? Courage. What makes the muskrat guard his must? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seven wonder? Courage. Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hot and tot so hot? Courage. What puts the ape in apricot? Courage. What, a, what have they got that I ain't got? What do I got that I think I ain't got? Courage. <laughs> so we all have this capacity for courage. And just the fact that we're sitting here and that we have the courage to come here to do this work 
of getting to know our own hearts and minds takes an incredible courage because it's not easy. And if it's super easy for you, come see me and I will come and bow at your feet because I have not found that to be true. And actually, even at times where it seems like it's going along, more or less, sooner or later, something will come on that really, really takes a lot of courage, even if it's just something simple, like keeping my mouth shut and not reacting. This is from Rumi, and I, I don't know if I read it last week. I don't think so, but if I did, it's still it's wonderful to hear again. This is on Love and Silence from Rumi's Ode. I don't get tired of you. Don't grow weary of being compassionate towards me. All must thirst. All this thirst equipment must surely be tired of me. The water jar, the water carrier. I have a thirsty fish in me that can never find enough for what it's thirsty for. Show me the way to the ocean. Break these half measures, these small containers, all this fantasy and grief. Let my house be drowned in the wave that rose last night in the courtyard, hidden in the center of my chest. Break these half measures, fantasy and grief. So much of our time is spent trying to be somewhere and someone else other than who we are. Um, one of our teachers said, sometimes we're all hoping for a better past. I particularly find that helpful when, I, when I'm working with folks because um, so often it's like, if only I weren't this way or if only this hadn't happened to me, then I wouldn't suffer like this. And, and that, that it actually takes courage to accept how it is. And the Buddha invites us through the path, the middle way, the middle way, which is neither too tight, it's not a reckless kind of action, it's, it's a balanced courage. It's not um, too loose, where you're really not um, paying attention and willing to do the deep work of looking and noticing what's happening. Um, I was um, um, leading something the other day, and one of the people, um, one of the teachings from... Um, uh, was from Minya Rinpoche, was talking about how the, the, the experience that we often have, which Mark also talks about here and we often talk about with mindfulness, is that when we first start to practice, we notice how the mind is, how this whole system has just been flooded. Sometimes we feel worse. We might initially feel a little peace, but then as we pay closer attention, we can often feel like he describes it as like a waterfall like just like constant thoughts, constant worries. We start to notice just how imbalanced we are. And it takes a lot of courage to recognize, oh, actually that's an insight. That's the first insight in meditation, in our Vipassana practice, is noticing how we're somewhere else making other plans, how we're always busy thinking, planning, doing, worrying, lost in our stories, lost in our suffering, when we start to recognize that, um, we start to wake up. So the Buddha's teaching invites us to discover this ease in meditation in the marketplace, wherever we are, 
In the middle way, we come to rest in the reality of the present moment, where all opposites exist. T.S. Eliot calls this the still point of the turning world. The sage Shantideva calls the middle way complete non-referential ease. The perfect text wisdom describes it as the realization of suchness beyond the attainment of good or bad, ever present with all things, both as path and goal. So the ability to live in the reality of the present, as one teacher put it, is the middle path does not go from here to here to there. It goes from here to here. So it takes a lot of courage and cultivation of the capacity to stay and to be with what's really present. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, make some plans and have some aspirations or goals. I think some of us think more, take this in such a literal way, it's like, well, I have to, I can't live my life. But it's actually about being here, and when you're here, even in the present moment, you may be deciding what your next step is or what your aspiration is. But it's really about keeping coming here with this kind of unconditional acceptance and finding this balance of the middle way in the present moment. Does that make sense? Because a lot of our suffering is wanting it to be other than it is and wanting ourselves to be other than we are. And we want to be rid of our our difficulties, like our fear, you know, what a fear of whatever it is, whether it's I'm inadequate, I'm not enough, or whether I'm afraid I won't get what I, my needs met, um, or I don't have my needs met. In the middle way, we discover that the world is workable. Ajahn Sumedho teaches us to open to the way things are. Of course, we can always imagine imagine more perfect conditions, how it should be ideally, how everyone else should behave. But it's our task to create, it's not our task to create an ideal. It's our task to see how it is and learn from the world as it is. For the awakening of the heart, the conditions are always good enough. So the awakening of the heart, the heart sure release, is always available in the current conditions that we have. Sure, right. True. Check it out. See if it's true. Don't believe me. Um, so, so why why do we meditate? Why do we meditate? And why do we want to cultivate a courageous heart? Well, I came upon this fabulous poem late last night, and it's a long one, and I'll I'll try to. Um, maybe I might not read the whole thing, but I highly recommend it. It's actually in Spirit Rock's um, recent um, news and schedule of event, events, and it's by a wonderful teacher, Wes Nisker. He's been here a long time ago. He's also used to run a radio station. He's, he has a lot of humor. He's also very much about um, the environment, and Wes I think when I read this late last night, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to bring this in. I wasn't even planning on it. So so I'm bringing Wes in. Um, he said this is after Allen Ginsberg. Why meditate? Why I meditate? I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. 
I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there's so many other things to do. I meditate because when I was younger, it was all the rage. I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha Dharma, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Alfred E. Newman, etc. Meditate. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. I meditate because I want to touch deep time, where the history of humanity can be seen as an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because life is too short and sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi did or Walt Whitman or Mary Oliver does. I meditate because I know that enlightenment doesn't exist so I can relax. I meditate because the Dal- because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there's too many advertisements in my head and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. I meditate because the physicists say there may be 11 dimensions to reality and I want to get a peek into a few more of them. I meditate because I want to remember that I'm perfectly human. Sometimes I meditate because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta master once told me that in Hindi my name Nisker means non-doer. I meditate because I'm growing old and I want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because it's such a relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because my country spends more money on weapons than all the other nations in the world combined, and if I had more courage, I'd probably emulate myself. I meditate because I'm building myself a bigger and better perspective, and occasionally I need a new window. I meditate because I want to discover the fifth Brahma-Vihara, the divine abode of awe, and then I'll go down in history as a great spiritual adept. I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. Now if that doesn't give you courage, I don't know what does. You know? Why do you meditate? You know, you might write your own poem about that. You know, why do I meditate? Why do I come on a beautiful evening to the Dharma Hall? You know? Why do I keep going even when I don't feel like it and I want to give up? So I came across um, some teachings um, written by um, Martine Batchelor, who's in, in our Theravadan tradition, and she borrowed some teachings from the Zen um, path. And she calls this Lights Upon Path. Lights upon the path, great faith, great courage, and great questioning. So before I go into these much more, I'll just list them again. So there's three great attitudes, great faith, great courage, and great questioning. There's a stage of practice on the path of purification, which is what we're on, um, whether you realize it or not. 
Um, this is the path of practice. And as we go through it, we're, we're doing what the seasons naturally do. We start to shed and clear and rake up what's not needed. You know, you start to clear out um, what's um, getting in the way of your free heart. And in that process, and maybe you've all experienced this at one time or another, is you go through a stage, what they call rolling up the mat, where you're like, I've had it. I cannot do this anymore. And it takes a lot of courage and um, to keep going. Times where you might feel like it's just dry and you're going through the motions in practice. Times where the suffering, emotional, physical, mental, is very great and you just want to run out of the hall. I know when I first started practicing in the yoga tradition many years ago, um, I had a lot of un unresolved um, difficulties from growing up in my family and a lot of things I just was completely unaware about. And when I went to lie down in a lying down meditation, I mean, everybody's lying there. Everybody, like tonight, everybody looks so like Buddhas, right, just peaceful. But you have no idea. I mean, it, 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 it was all I could do to not run out of the room screaming, you know. And I remember at one time I was so frustrated that I could not tame my mind. We used to use a mala that I, I broke my mala beads. We were supposed to do these 108 repetitions of something. And it was like trying to ride, you know, a wild bull at the rodeo. I mean, it was just, I got so mad, I like broke the things and I, and I, I didn't even, I don't even know how I was able to go back. But I think that, that I wanted the heart's release. I didn't even know what it was called then. I was young and I didn't know, but I knew that I wanted freedom and I knew I wanted peace. And I kept going. So I think like this courageous energy is to continue to explore, to continue to grow and continue to practice even when it feels difficult and to keep finding a balance and get whatever supports that you need to support that process. And in my experience, I've been very fortunate to have, have, have and continue to have good mentors, teachers, and for sure other Dharma brothers and sisters on the path. Very important to have other people, which also helps us to stay and stay and stay. So, so what are these qualities? These qualities of great faith, great courage, and great questioning are light, lights on the path. When we, we need help in finding our way, we can use them. Sometimes with sufficient faith, we can look at suffering itself. Sometimes we have the courage to look at the person who's suffering. Sometimes we can reflect on it. Sometimes we can only sit in the midst of it, trying trying to be with the turbulence, and then we cry and we're very sad. You know, one of the roles that I have as a therapist is I sit with people who are in a tremendous amount of grief. Um, I'm, I'm actually working um, in another practice where the primary work is grief and loss. And people, it's amazing to me the power of just being able to sit there and sometimes I'm sitting there and tears are rolling down my cheeks too because it's so sad. It's so painful, that loss of that, 
parent, of that partner. Um, I'm going to be seeing a family um, next week for the second time where the father just gone, unexpected, you know, young family, children. Um, you know, how do you show up for that? Um, I remember when my mother was dying, and um, I say this because not as to boast, but because of the power of learning to stay and the courageous energy of practice, that when my mother was in her her final death throes and there was a lot of um, trying to keep her alive so other relatives, her grandchildren, could come while she was still alive, and they were doing all kinds of, you know, very um, grisly, you know, procedures. And... Um, what I found is that because of the practice of learning to stay and some of the practices and reflections on death meditation, that I had enough training that I actually wanted to be in the room. And I was so grateful to the Dharma and that I was actually there when she breathed her last um, because of this practice. And I didn't even know I was being, I didn't think of myself as being courageous, but I realized that this practice can give us the courage to face even death, even, you know, all of, you know, the difficulty of sitting with loss and things we can't control. So, so when it's dark and you want a little light to help you go on your, your way home, these three lights these three practices can help guide us. And we can see that we have choices. So the first one, faith, is saying yes to your own potential. Faith is really about our potential and what it is we value in life. Courage is a form of energy and enthusiasm that also speaks to letting go and going beyond, and that faith is the very ground of practice. Sharon Salzberg has written a beautiful book on faith, and I I refer to it um, every so often because it's not a faith in something outside of ourselves. It's actually the faith in our own deepest experience. It's the faith that comes also that's experiential, that we can uh, draw on. You know, just like the Buddha said, come be a lamp unto yourself. Just come and see for yourself. Is it, is this how it is? And, and, and you can have this verified faith. You can really test out the teachings. Or is it working? And faith is like the sun behind the clouds, she said. No matter what happens, the sun is shining. The sun is there. It's still bright, even if it's stormy and dark and we're totally wet and covered over. Great faith is that sun, shining by itself, holding for us the potential that we can access and cultivate in our lives. So maybe take a moment before I move on and just just touch in and reflect on what comes up for you or what the word faith means in your heart. Um, and, And even if it's like, I don't know, or I'm not sure if I have faith. Just notice that. Or, oh, there's a sense of faith. There's something that I trust that's beyond my rational, cognitive mind. 
The second of these lights that give us choices is courage, which we've been talking about, and we already had teachings from the cowardly lion that wasn't really a coward at all. That what arises naturally from great faith is what? Great courage. The courage that we all need to go beyond what we're used to, beyond what we find comfortable. The courage to go beyond our habits. To say, what goes on? What is it that takes me away again and again? Seeing our emotional habits. Instead of being caught up in the feeling, we can try to know, to get to know it, to really do the practice, to just do it. Right? Great slogan. Just do it. Um, at a retreat some years, some time ago, um, I was on a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche out east, and um, he liked to say, just do it. So toward, at the end of the retreat, somebody got him, of course, the Tibetans wear a lot of burgundy and red. They got him a burgundy shirt with just do it on the front with the Nike logo on the back. <laughs> so he was very proudly wearing that. And um, he kept telling us, just do it, just do it. And then the third one is great questioning. And this is, this is, this is not just taking things on belief, on blind faith. This is that inquiry practice and curiosity that's part of being mindful and aware. It's important to inquire, to reflect, to use your own wisdom again and again. You know, so many of us, I know I am, I want to seek a little peace. I love when the mind gets even a tiny bit concentrated, you know. It's sort of like snorkeling instead of being in the waves and being crashed around every five seconds. But that's not the whole picture. That's not wisdom. And you need a little calming and concentration to be able to see more deeply, to be able to stick your head in the water takes courage and look and see what's there and be curious. So questioning can be done in many ways. You have to be careful that the questioning does not become negative existential questioning. When questioning is balanced by the anchor of faith, it's not an endless, pointless questioning of everything that leaves you feeling in a terrible, dark place. I, I often see this with folks, particularly when depression is strong, anxiety is strong, fear is strong. There's this questioning, but it's not an inquiry. It's a questioning like, well, I can, I, am I any good? Am I ever really going to be able to, you know, it's just sort of almost like a self-deprecating questioning and doubt. It's more like doubt. It's more like a deep doubt and seeing life in yourself through a glass darkly or through very whipped up um, conditions and you, you're not able to be clear in, when in those mind states. But this is not that. This is not like kind of going down the rabbit hole into the spiral of questioning, you know, what's the point where you want to, you know, off yourself, God forbid. This is the... Um, questioning that's the inquiry it may even be like what's going on what's what's happening that i'm going down this rabbit hole you could get curious about it the key element of great questioning is the power to see clearly and to transform in meditation there's concentration there's also inquiry with great questioning so she talks about these four different types of questioning there's the the great questioning is the power to see clearly and transform and to look through misperception of me and mine and see what's keeping me blocked, what stops me from seeing the collective nature of life and experience. The questioning that gives us choices. 
The third one is, is creative questioning. Meditation can help us develop creative questioning. Um, we start to know what's going on. Meditation's not meant to t- take us somewhere else to some pure, rarefied state. It engages us in our existence. We ask ourselves, what's going on in this moment? What's happening? What conditioning am I experiencing? How am I experiencing what I'm experiencing right now? And what is the result of that? You know, I find this really helpful. Like even tonight, I was aware that I, I, I was feeling kind of flat. Um, I had been tired. I, I was outside happily on my bicycle and um, feeling this kind of blahness. And so I got curious about it. It's like, oh, what's what's happening? What am I noticing? Oh, oh, there's kind of this blah, and there's kind of this, you know, bit of disconnect. Like kind of just being curious about it. And then actually I, I, I started to um, just accept myself there. I just kind of went, oh, okay. And then it started to lighten up because my intention was to um, speak with a open heart. And so I just set my intention. And um, my heart started to be less dry and flat. So I think just accepting what's there and starting there. And then the fourth kind of questioning is not an intellectual questioning, but an experiential questioning. And sometimes that's an even silent questioning. One of my teachers, I love this, and now that I have a cat again, I appreciate it even more. And I think that cats sometimes are enlightened because, you know, they're when they have full concentration and they're about ready to pounce or eat your foot, you know, they're like this and there's that. And there's just... And well, he said that... Um, that you can do silent inquiry where you're like a cat at the hole of the mouse, but you're not tight. You're just really aware. And you're kind of, hmm, you're kind of waiting but not stalking because there's no mouse there, right? There's nothing there. But you kind of go into this spot of like sitting really aware and alert, not not tight like the cat with all the... I mean, they, they're actually just sitting there and they get tight when they're ready, you know, ready to pounce like my cat saw something in the window and his, her, her whole body was like a, a one muscle. That's not happening yet. They're kind of rested back. And, and so actually, I, why don't we try this for a moment? Like just, just get relaxed as you can and, as a, and, then, and then imagine whatever your mouse hole is and just drop in and just go, huh? You know, kind of, kind of like focus. Maybe it doesn't work for you, but I, I, it's kind of this silent inquiry, like just kind of seeing, being really curious. What's going to come out of that hole? <laughs> you know, what, what's happening? You could drop in. What silently? What's happening? And just notice what you notice. So there's these different kinds of questioning that come up. I think inquiry practice, um, again, is a wisdom practice that helps us. And it takes a lot of courage to ask the question sometimes, to wake up out of our 
automatic habits or patterns and to say, you know, what am I really doing right now? Or is this really um, going to support the direction I'm, I'm cultivating? Or is this going to um, not? So this is um, from Jack Cornfield. And, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll read this other reading first. It's, it, this is where, you know, it's so important to inquire and have courage and faith and questioning those lights of, of um, on the path. Um, Haim, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, Haim Ganat. He says, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element it is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal in all situations. It is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated. A person is humanized or dehumanized. Now, I, I actually asked one of my Dharma friend teachers um, the question about, um, you know, I said, "What would you? We need to have a whole teachings and gatherings, and maybe we start. We are. We're starting to to do that about how do we have a courageous heart." Um, and not just react to what's going on in the world. Here in Minnesota, with Black Lives Matter, with what's going on in North Minneapolis, um, you know, what, with um, the terrorist attacks, with the political, um, I don't even know what to call it. Um, I mean, I, I find myself wanting to just, I just like, oh, Rage feels like this. <laughs> Outrage feels like this. Injustice feels like this. That's one practice. You can begin to just name it and notice what's happening. How does it actually feel in the heart and the mind? And then, and then in those moments, I, I, I certainly don't want to be um, completely escalated and triggered into um, just reactivity. I, I mean... And, and, and also realize that if, you know, all of, like, if I just react and make those, those people bad, um, I'm really, um, disconnected from wisdom and from my heart. So it's, I, I'm just putting it out as an inquiry practice, okay? So how do we live in this world now, in these times, with a courageous heart when it comes to these world situations? And how do we cultivate wisdom, compassion, and insight? And then how do we show up when we're in those situations? Um, one thing that Thich Nhat Hanh um, says, and I, I didn't bring the poem today, but if you haven't read it, I've read it in the past here, Call Me By My True Names, is to see that we all have some of that within us and that any of us could be that in the, in the certain conditions or moments. Some of us have worked in prison settings. It's very powerful 
because you'd like to think that people in the prisons are totally not like you. Well, not so true. You know, it just causes and conditions. And a lot of folks, it just was like that moment or, or a, a, a cascade of conditions and decisions that weren't really made or unconsciousness or, you know, and seeing, wow. And when some of them, some of the folks who are often, you know, have mental health issues or chemical dependency and they start to get clearer, um, you see the, you see the beauty of their heart shining through and you're just like, wow. This, this could be me, could have been me. So I want to leave some time tonight so we can open up a discussion. And if you, there's so much more to explore here on what that means to have a courageous heart. Um, and I think sometimes I'll just share a couple quick things. Something, um, one metaphor that could be helpful is that. Um, you know the metaphor of like if you put a teaspoon of salt in a glass of water, it's going to be really salty. But if you put a teaspoon of salt in a larger body of, of water, it, you won't taste the salt. So sometimes we just need to put it in a bigger space. Our suffering, um, our difficulty, our fear. And sometimes that's very helpful, like even to know that just as I'm experiencing this, other people are experiencing this, especially when it's something is great, you know, that's really suffering. Like, wow, someone else knows someone with cancer. My husband's brother-in-law is um, just um, in the hospital and, and at the end stage of pancreatic cancer. And, and just knowing, like, how many people, one of my dear friends, one of the other teachers here lost her husband to pancreatic cancer, you know, We've lost other Dharma brother here from pancreatic. You know, just like even if it's not that particular cancer, you start to realize um, how big, you know, it's not just that person. So I think that might be a helpful practice as well, is sometimes just seeing the connection and putting that salt, that difficulty into a bigger space um, into of compassion. I'd like to close with... Um, a roomy palm open up for your insights. This is called Not Here. There's courage involved if you want to become truth. There is a broken open place in a lover. Where are those qualities of bravery and sharp compassion in this group? What's the use of old and frozen thought? I want howling hurt. This is not a treasury where gold is stored. This is for copper. We alchemists look for talent that can heat up and change. Lukewarm won't do it. Half-hearted holding back. Well enough getting by. Not here. Not here. There's courage involved if you want to become truth. Let's sit for a moment. Okay, so anything you'd like to share? Or? Well, I think the fact that you're inquiring is awesome. You know, is it too much? 
How's it feel inside? Is this the right timing? I think mindfulness gives us some guidelines, like is it is this timing? How is it feeling? What's what's my stress level? It's not that we're not engaged in life. I mean, this is about really fully engaging and responding and 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 taking action. It's not just navel gazing and and being passive, but it's like some of us we have such a habit of more and better and self improvement, and then then I'll be and in, in the future and we're somewhere else. And I think as you're becoming more mindful and you're asking the questions, you begin to listen in. And sometimes it's surprising when you start um, sort of um, priming that well, you start to trust, you start to have faith in your own inner ways of knowing. You know, um, I know I've made decisions from that and people have looked, I mean major life decisions, and people have looked at me like, are you crazy? Why would you be doing that? But inside, that little voice or that eh, eh is like, no, I need to let this go. Or this is, I need to go here. And sometimes it's to the road less traveled. <laughs> so I wish you well and, you know, keep practicing, keep inquiring. And, and there are some good guidelines on clear comprehension. I usually recommend Philip Moffat's book on, um, uh, I just lost the word, is clarity. Um, he has one on, it's on clear comprehension. But um, look up some of those teachings and that might help too. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.